Hey, listeners. Uh, before we get into our normally scheduled program, Madison and I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the recent tragedy in Colorado Springs at Club Q, where a man decided to enter a safe space for queer people and wreak senseless violence against them. As we're recording this, five people were declared dead and at least 18 others were physically injured. If you can, please donate to Ongoing Relief for the victims and their families. We will have resource links available in the description of this episode and we'll link to at least one in our Instagram bio. And to our LGBTQ plus listeners, we hope that you are safe and you're taking care of yourselves. We see you. We love you. To quote a tweet that I saw earlier today from Shay Wesley Martin on Twitter, LGBTQ kids deserve to become LGBTQ adults. LGBTQ adults deserve to become LGBTQ elders, and LGBTQ elders deserve to age with dignity, joy, and affirmation. Hello, and welcome back to Love at First Screening, the show where I, rom-com enthusiast Madison, introduce my friend, co-host, and resident genre skeptic Chelsea. That's me. To all the feel-good. Cliché. Romantic. Questionable. Hilarious. Occasionally humorous. Films she's never wanted to watch. So Madison, how does it feel to be back in the driver's seat? Honestly, I am ready to steer us into a brick wall like I normally do. I'm ready for the collision, baby. I am, uh, as fun as it was being in charge, I feel a lot more confident being able to just follow your lead. Oh, man. You wouldn't want to if we were dancing. I once had someone try to teach me how to waltz. Was I a little bit drunk on New Year's Eve? Yes, but that doesn't matter. Speaking of leading, I was in a production of The King and I when I was 15, I think. 14 or 15. I played the lead, Anna. Oh. Yes. And at some point I had to dance with the the king and um, I got yelled at because I kept trying to lead. And (laughs) they were like, Chelsea, you cannot lead and I was like I don't really understand what that means and they were like you can't control where you're going and I went well that's gonna be a real problem for me (laughs) (laughs) it's like excuse me um I'm the captain now exactly exactly but in but you know what I I I trust you Madison and um I enjoy not feeling so anxious that I will have forgotten to research something. So, you know, there's a trade-off. I will say, Chelsea, that looking this up, I had all the information for the director at the ready and then just didn't put his name in any of my notes. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Professionals, the both of us. <laughs> we truly are. I've never, ever met anyone quite so ready to podcast as we were when we started. And here we are, episode eight, and everything is completely polished and there's never any kinks. No, I don't think we've ever had any audio issues, any anything, really. And everyone knows that you can't actually edit audio. So all of this just completely uncut. Yep, exactly. 
Perfect. Chelsea, I would like to remind you, though, that uh, unfortunately, safety metrics in cars are not made to fit women's proportions and general everything. All crash test dummies are males. So I hope you're really buckled in for this one because women die at a much more alarming rate in car crashes. But this won't be that unless maybe metaphorically. You're fine. I have I have great insurance. I know great attorneys. I briefly freaked out because I was like, this movie does not have a car crash in it. Did I watch the wrong thing? <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. That was just a really sad extended metaphor for what this might end up being now that I'm back in the driver's seat, baby. Great. <laughs> I think it's time that they learn what we're watching. All right, let's do it. This week, we're watching The Birdcage, which when I told everyone what we were watching, it was hotly contended as to whether or not it should be on this podcast. (laughs) Hotly contested. Okay. In this remake of the classic French farce, La Cage aux Folles, which is not how you pronounce that. I don't know French. It translates literally. Oh, you do? Yeah. Should. Okay, will you scroll down and to my notes and tell me how to pronounce it? I'd like it noted for the record that I, I don't actually know French. I know like three words in French. But I'm also very confident in my pronunciation. Ah, that's all I need. La cage à follet, maybe? Ooh. I mean, look, I said it pretty confidently. And, I, and as of right now, we only have listeners in Denmark and Australia. So, I mean, I'm not saying that those people don't speak French, nor am I saying that no one in the U.S. currently listening doesn't speak French, but la cage à follet. Claire, I know that you're listening to this, and I know that you speak near-fluent French, and I swear to God, when I get a text from you about this, I'm simply going to perish. So... I only speak some German. I know enough German to count and say really inappropriate things. And I only learned German because I was trying really, really hard to date the German tutor. Iconic. Thank you. I did date him. I have so many regrets. Anyway, back to business. The original French farce uh, translates literally to the cage of crazy women. And it was directed by Mike Nichols, who had three Oscar Best Picture nominees with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in 1966, The Graduate in 1967, and Working Girl in 1988. And he was also nominated for Best Director for each film and won for The Graduate. Alrighty. Wow. Very, very accomplished director. And you could see the translation of those skills in this film, as we'll discuss. In this remake, we have an engaged couple, Val Goldman, played by Dan Futterman, and Barbara Keeley, played by Callista Flockhart, and they plan to introduce their future in-laws. Val's father, Armand, played by Robin Williams, is a gay Miami drag club owner, He pretends to be straight and attempts to hide his relationship with his partner, Albert, who is played by Nathan Lane. He's his life partner and the club star attraction. 
Starina. To please Barbara's father, who is a controversial Republican senator, Kevin Keeley, played by Gene Hackman, they decide to try and present as a straight couple. Well, I'll put it this way. Albert is told to leave while Armand finds Val's biological mother and asks her to come after 20 years of not being there to come and play his wife and the role of Val's mom to convince the future in-laws that they are good, upstanding citizens. When their original plan falls through to have Val's biological mother play the role of his father's wife, Albert pretends to be Val's mother, charming the Republican senator. When the ruse is uncovered and the press learns that Senator Keeley is with a drag club owner and its star, they sneak the senator out in drag. The two kids end up marrying happily ever after. So that's the introduction to the movie. And Chelsea, when I first recommended this, I thought she'll probably like it because I had not seen it in quite some time. And then I rewatched it and I said, oh no, I do not think she will like this. So I don't think that you despised it. It's certainly no never been kissed, but I'm not quite sure that it still wasn't a miss for you. This, honestly, I, this is a film I would describe as lopsided in the sense that like there were some things I found genuinely funny. There were some moments I thought were really kind and sincere and I liked those. And then there were things that I was confused about whether I was supposed to be laughing. And I just kept wondering who the intended audience for this film was, because I think that would help answer the question of, was I supposed to laugh at that joke or, and like, look, I think the elephant in the room is we have two, to my knowledge, straight actors Wait, Nathan Lane is gay. Oh, He's been okay. married to his husband since 2015. I had to double check that. Oh, well, that's nice. Okay, I do think that I do think that some folks would probably have a maybe have a problem with Nathan Lane's very effeminate, flamboyant character. I don't necessarily have a problem with it. I feel like the times where it was clear to me that I was supposed to be laughing, it was more at the fact that he was being a diva which really had nothing to do with his sexuality or gender presentation it was more about him being difficult they're like houseboy or agador yeah agador uh gives him aspirin that he just scratches the letters off of so that he thinks he's taking some kind of drug which is very funny oh like okay did you ever watch bunheads not to just keep bringing up the incredible work of Amy Sherman Palladino. It only had one season. I think it's on Hulu. Anyway, the irrelevant bit of information here is Liza Wheel, who was Paris on Gilmore Girls, plays this, I don't remember what her name is, but she's like very stern lawyer, businesswoman, and donates money so that they can build this amphitheater and then like wants creative control because she wants to like be involved in the arts. And then Kelly Bishop, who is Emily in Gilmore Girls, plays the ballet teacher in Budheads. And she, I just remember the line where she was like, 
do you want to know the arts or do you want to just be perceived as someone that knows the arts and then basically is like, you know, like, let's put on a show and then I can have creative control back of my dance studio and the productions we're putting on. So anyway, my we can probably cut all of that. I don't know that any of that was necessary. My <laughs> point here is that, like, I thought that was very funny because... You know, there are people dramatic. I, I, there are things I did as a teenager or when I was younger, I used to, my mom had these like bath salt bottles that, you know, they had the little like cork in them and they looked very fancy. And like when she was done, she'd wash them out. And then I would like fill it with juice and I would pretend it was like a poison and then I would faint. And I did this like <laughs> repeatedly, like, because I was just like, oh my God. Dra the drama. I did lots of theater when I was uh, younger, in case that was not obvious. Anywho, my point is, is that sometimes people are dramatic. I understand as someone who on occasion has been told they are dramatic. So I can appreciate Nathan Lane's character. I think there are other moments where it is very clear that like, maybe you're supposed to be laughing at the fact that he's more effeminate and like, those are not moments I found particularly funny, but again, it was kind of weird. And I guess we'll probably get into some of my, I, I feel like I really just have one fix for this movie. We'll get to it eventually. So yeah, so I guess overall impression is that I wasn't really sure who the intended audience was, which, and, and I feel like maybe it's one of, it truly is one of those movies where they're trying to have this story appeal to as many people as possible. Like, I don't know what the budget for this was. I don't know what the release looked like. And that's not something we usually talk about. So I don't expect you to have that information unless you've been Googling it while I've been talking and stalling. But anyway, it, it felt to me as if you're you're trying to have both insiders and outsiders maybe enjoy this. And I think that leads to feeling a little odd and unsure about some of the content or the way that things are portrayed on screen. That's sort of my takeaway. I didn't hate this movie. I didn't. This is not my new favorite movie. I feel like, like I said, there are things I really liked. And then there were things I was confused about. There were some things that I was like, eh, I probably could have done without that. The budget for this film, because <laughs> I always have the budget readily available. I just never think to bring it up. <laughs> the estimated budget was around $31 million. In the U.S. and Canada, it grossed $124 million. Opening weekend saw $18.2 million. And grossed worldwide, uh, it grossed $185 million. Is that... I, I feel like I don't know enough about movie budgets. I mean, that's certainly not as much as, like, the MCU is getting for any of their projects, but... Oh, no, the MCU basically has the same equivalent budget of, like, the United States military. Okay, great, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kevin Feige, he's out there shaking hands, making deals, like Robert Johnson out there at a crossroads to get the MCU to continue. Which, honestly, I watched She-Hulk, I ain't even mad about it. I have not watched She-Hulk yet. I have, however, put the She-Hulk filter on on TikTok. And it makes you look as incredible as everyone says it does. Why are we all not green? You know, I ask myself that every single morning when I look in the mirror. You're just like. And then I cry. Ugh, what is this peach undertone? Ugh, disgusting. Well, that's my problem. I have like really yellow undertones. I can't oh. wear yellow. 
or else I'll look jaundiced, which I was pretty severely as a child. Straight out the womb, I surfed out. I also was jaundiced as, as an infant, and my mom had to lay me in the sun. Oh my goodness, that's actually, look at us bonding over this moment <laughs> right here. <laughs> wow. And uh, Just in case anyone was wondering if any of this was scripted. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so I have some notes because I always take like little notes. I'll write down lines that I like or plot points. And the first one that I want to address is one that I wrote like halfway through watching this. And it is that the real villain of this movie is Val. Yes, it's the son. Okay. Yes. Oof. Yeah, I, okay. So this is a kind of what I, I think was alluding to earlier. I... I think Robin Williams's performance, it was very clear to me that like, at least it felt like you're supposed to take him seriously. Like he's, he feels genuinely hurt that his son has asked him to hide. And while maybe he understands, but like, I, I feel like the, the stakes here are like, oh, this person who is of, uh, of legal uh, marrying age and an adult is just going to be forbidden from marrying this guy if she really wants to. Like, that's not what's going to happen. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, if she really wants to, she would. And so mm-hmm. I, it just doesn't feel like enough for this guy to... And also, it seems as if they've lived over the drag club for always. You're telling me this kid grew up with drag queens under his feet and two dads in the other room and he's going to ask them to make themselves smaller for this conservative politician who doesn't care about their rights. And okay, I know I'm jumping way to the end of the movie, but like... (laughs) When he, when Gene Hackman says, first of all, doesn't believe, like, he's just not understanding the fact that, like, he's, you know, thought that uh, Nathan Lane was a woman this whole time, which I also want to talk about. But anyway, then he's, like, he's, like, visibly just upset and disgusted. And then he's, like, I hope this doesn't change your vote. Like, sir, they were not voting for you. Are you fucking kidding me? And it's also just so gross and slimy because like, and I, and I look, I'm, that is unfortunately politics, I think a lot of the time, but the fact that everything is like so calculated and so like, oh, it just, I just wanted to smack him. Yeah, no, when he, so there was one line where he was talking about how Billy Graham uh, was too liberal That's like so quintessentially Republican in this era because Billy Graham was the first true, you know, evangelical, fundamental, like fundamental evangelical figurehead who branched into a political sphere with what he was preaching about. Uh, But what he was preaching about included like desegregation he thought that segregation made no sense in the context of the evangelical movement and 
he actually got really on well with JFK. I will say that he supported Nixon. So, you know, there's some hits, some misses. He was staunchly pro-life, except in instances that of like, you know, rape, incest, that sort of thing, which not even fucking Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis can get behind. So, <laughs> shit, I guess he is. Look, and this maybe this is just that dark sense of humor that like uh, I tend to have. But when they're at dinner and Gene Hackman is talking to Nathan Lane, who is dressed up as a woman and pretending to be mother and they're having a conversation about uh, the pro-life movement and and Gene Hackman's <laughs> character is like, we need to kill the doctors that are performing these procedures so that way like they can't, the procedures won't be done. And then Nathan Lane's like, no, we should be killing the mothers. They're the <laughs> because without them, the procedure wouldn't have to be done. The doctors are just doing their jobs. And he's like, and she, and then he's like, and I know what you're thinking. What about the fetus? Well, they're going to get rid of it anyway. So it, let it go down with the ship. And I was laughing so hard at that <laughs> because so honest, clever. because honestly, like, Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think that there will be people that look at that joke and like just totally not get it. And they will view Nathan Lane's character as like, oh, this liberal pro-choice, whatever, baby killer, whatever those, you know, the the pro-life people say. But what is so what makes that so funny is that he is literally making an argument that is so hyperbolic because people that say they're pro-life don't actually value life at all. And so it is, I'm sorry, but that, that was so good. That joke was so good. And honestly, yeah, it, it was so good. And, and this is one of the moments that like, I mean, I know this was only 96, so it's not like that old, but I was like, okay. I, I, I had to pause the movie at that point to, like, finish laughing. I, that was so funny. <laughs> let it oh let them God. go down with the ship. Oh, my God. Oh, God, yeah. I knew, I knew you were going to like that part. And I loved, like, watching, in that moment, watching Nathan Lane's character go back and forth with this senator because he was like, and I will go ahead and tell you that I, like, full body cringe Every time I hear the F slur, I just, I, it causes such a visceral physical reaction in me. But when he was talking about, you know, gays in the military, and then I found out that Alexander the Great was a homosexual. Talk about gays in the military. And I'm just like, God, this is so, just so well scripted and so well acted. I mean, just everything about that whole dinner sequence is just delicious. I know. Gene Hackman talking to Nathan Lane as mother is honestly probably some of the best stuff in this film, uh, comedy-wise. Oh, yeah. I think it's 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 really, really something. And that's, okay, the other funny thing is, right, is... Gene Hackman is like, what a woman. Like, they just don't make him like that anymore. <laughs> and all I could think about is the fact that, like, they've done studies on the fact that when men build their dating profiles, they are building them in a way that would attract other men. Yes. 
So like, I, I could not stop thinking about that because I'm like, he is attracted to this person because, and like the, it not, not attracted to this person, like in a physical way, but attracted to this person on like an intellectual level, the way that he like carries himself and the way that he speaks because he is a man. Yeah. And like the fact that he is ignoring his wife the whole time and just like does not give a shit. Like it just goes to show you that men, men don't actually like women. They just no, don't. They, don't. they are uninterested. You are, you are an incubator and a warm body. <laughs> no, I was talking to my older sister the other day. She's decided to try dating apps and stuff like that. And she just, she sent me a single like screenshot of this one guy's profile. And I said, you know, it's so odd the way that men build their profiles in terms of the pictures they choose, because I've never ever come across a good photo on a man's dating profile online. And I think part of it, we went into this weird tangent where it's like, well, women tend to be the documenters of life. You know, moms typically take the pictures of their kids and their husband and no one's often taking pictures of her. And that trickles down, you know, you see younger women offering to take pictures of their friends or asking for selfies. You don't see men ever taking pictures of like anything. And so I think it's just a part that they have no idea and they realize they have no pictures of themselves unless maybe an ex-girlfriend took it uh, tends to be the situation for for straight men but yeah no it's that I loved that scene and I think what I found most interesting about it is throughout this movie of course Robin Williams had some excellent points of humor because it's Robin fucking Williams but I would say that the two I don't want to give Gene Hackman's character any credit in this so I'm gonna reduce him down he did a great he had a stellar job acting in this role but Nathan Lane's character in both the script but also just mostly in his delivery really stole the show when it came to the comedic elements of this movie and having him play across from Robin Williams and stand out as the comedic element I think is a true testament to his acting in this yeah but uh I loved him well, and you know, it's kind of funny, right? Because like, and I mean, not that, I mean, I think I, and I would wager that maybe a lot of people um, have probably seen the same films that I have that, you know, Robin Williams is in, Mrs. Doubtfire, Hook, um, you know, like, I think when you think Robin Williams, you think of his ability to you know, do impressions and, and his comedic. But I think what's kind of really cool about this film is that like this, like some of the sincere moments are like, he is carrying that. And then Nathan mm -hmm. Lane, you know what I mean? So it's just like, it might be a little bit surprising because, which is not to say that, that Robin Williams does not have comedic moments in this film. It's just that you might expect that he would be carrying this movie. And I don't think he is in that respect. But I also right. think that he, you can actually, like, he's a, he's a good performer. And, mm -hmm. you know, he, you know, I think probably, maybe not so much men, but I, like, not to go off on a tangent, but we do that here. <laughs> like, uh, Melissa McCarthy 
is an incredible actor, an incredible mm-hmm. actor. And because she's a woman, because she is a plus sized woman, she does not get the opportunity to perform in these meaty, dramatic roles that she absolutely has the acting chops to do time and time again. And like, look, I'm not I'm not saying that she does comedy poorly. She she's great in comedies. But I find that it's almost as if she's playing the same kind of character. And I don't think Mm -hmm. that's her fault. I think that it's the opportunities that she's given. But like, I mean, if you've ever seen her in a drama, she is phenomenal. She has a lot of range. And so I think Robin Williams is probably one of those people that like is known for one thing. But like, if you actually look at his body of work, I mean, I mean, come off it, uh, Dead Poets Society? Are you fucking kidding me? I was about to me? say. Yeah. Oh, Captain, my captain, sir. Like, he has he has range. And yeah, I just... There are some of these performers out there that, like, they're known for one thing, but it's like... And, okay, not to go on the other side of the spectrum, but, like, one person that whose comedy drives me insane is Jim Carrey. Like, he's the same yeah. person every time. I'm, like, you're not even whoever you are. You are, you are being Jim Carrey, at least. That's what I'm, I'm convinced of. But, like, the first time mm-hmm. I saw him in a drama, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind or something like that, I might be, it's a very long title. He's incredible in that. I was like, oh, my God, this guy can actually act. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And so I think that I just, I really loved that this film was a comedy, but still allowed Robin Williams to show his range so well. I mean, look, I, I know we're only about, you know, we're we're not even that far into this conversation, but I think just it feels natural to put it here. But like my one, I guess, fix for this movie, like I think that this was a straight comedy in that like, I don't think, I think there were sincere moments, but it, I don't know that they were the, I don't think that the film was balanced in its use of those more serious moments and the mm-hmm. comedy, because I don't think that this was written. I don't think the movie was written that way. Yeah. And so the movie kind of felt a little long. I mean, it is two hours, so it's longer than I think most of the films that are that we've watched up until I think all of the films we've mm-hmm. watched up until this point, it's longer. But I think I would have really liked to see them lean in to the drama just a little bit more mm-hmm. and have this be more of a dramedy so that it's intentionally you have these very touching moments. Like the scene with Robin Williams and, and Nathan Lane on the bench where he, I think it's kind of in the middle of the movie. It's before the they, the dinner, which is like pretty much that second half of the movie. He gives him the, the signed palimony papers. And like, these are people that have been together living as partners for close to two decades. And they, you know, don't, I, I, you know, I think what you have to remind yourself watching it now is like, not only were they not married, but like legal arrangements were very difficult. I forget exactly when those kinds of legal arrangements became like a thing, you you know, same sex couples could could have, but it still wasn't the same as marriage. And there were lots of things they had to do to protect themselves for when, you know, in the event that that something happened to them. And that moment was honestly like I, I, you know, got a little bit choked up. Like I, Mm -hmm. I felt it in my chest. I was like, yes, 
and it was really nice. And so I think that, yeah, I feel like it, this, I would have rather seen this written as a dramedy. I think there were some just moments that I feel like they were trying to make a joke and it just fell flat. And I was just like, I don't, I don't know if that, I feel like that was supposed to be funny and it just wasn't. And I think that they were trying too hard to make certain things funny that I don't really think needed to be funny. And I feel like if they had been more strategic in how they approached balancing the drama with the comedy, I think the film would have been better. And maybe if it had been slightly shorter, I think there's a lot of build up to the dinner scene, which is definitely all comedy. Mm -hmm. And I think that maybe some, I don't think the dinner scene needed to be any longer, probably could have been a little bit shorter. And I definitely think some of the other stuff could have been shorter. Like I, one of my notes was that like, it's so clear that Robin Williams is playing, performing this as like, he's hurt, but the son is just acting as if they're ridiculous. And I don't really feel like as an audience watching this, that it's clear how wrong Val is. <laughs> Like, it's not just, like, my parents are weird. Like, there's a lot here. Well, I found myself just feeling genuinely confused later in the movie as he kind of progresses through this because, I mean, the first part where he's like, you know, we have to make this place look normal. You could chalk that up to you have really flamboyant decor and these are people who are very conservative and you have penis statues. I think, okay, maybe. I don't like it, but I can kind of understand where he's coming from in that moment. But then it keeps progressing and he wants to get rid of Albert and he wants his father to reach out to his biological mother who hasn't spoken to him ever. Like he's never met her. And that's strange. And it just keeps going and he keeps getting worse and worse. And you're sitting there going, what is going on? Because this is a man who was raised by Armand and Albert. So one, I can't, I can understand having moments where you're like, oh, that's it. That, you know, like a penis statue would kind of embarrass me. But asking them to hide every part of themselves, that just doesn't mesh with the picture that they paint where, you know, Armand brought him up with a lot of love. And they sort of briefly hint at this idea of them hiding their family dynamic in the past when Val was in school because he was like, you know... You told me if anyone asks me at school what you do to say that you're a businessman and not say, you know, that he owns a drag club. And he was like, well, you were a kid and I didn't want you to get picked on. To me, that kind of made sense in that kids are assholes, but he's a grown man who is arranging all of this because he plans to get married to somebody. And obviously he would want his father to be there he's not like he's gonna tell albert that he can't come to the wedding right so all of this was just so weird and also uncomfortably anti-semitic yeah. and racist yeah. uh, on the on the senator's side and let me just say that when he mentioned rush limbaugh triggered my gag reflex 
immediately. I was like, huh, no. You gave me a very brief synopsis about what this film was about. And I, I usually, I just go in blind mostly because I feel like I don't want to think one thing about the film when that's not actually what's going to happen because that could lead to me not liking it, not for actual reasons, but for my own self-imposed uh, <laughs> false beliefs. But I did see like uh, when I was going to watch the movie, it had a very brief and it was mostly just all of the big name actors that are that are in the film, but then it was like, what it means to grow up without a mother or something like that was like, or it was something along those lines. Because like, they do have that moment at the end where Val is the one that's like, comes clean. I mean, look, the jig is pretty much up at that point. Like, it's very clear that this is not going well, which is great for comedic content, but not great for fooling a senator uh, into thinking that you are a uh, upstanding Christian, the upstanding Christian family of his dreams. But anyway, I, you have that touching moment where he's like, Albert is my mother. And I, I almost like, I get it, but also I feel like what I would have loved the film to do was to, to go against the idea that family dynamics are so binary. Um, mm. Like, Mother and father it, within the nuclear family play a particular role. But we have a family here that it does not, does just patently does not work the way that, that the nuclear family does. Mm -hmm. And you would think that these are my parents. They're both my fathers. Like, I don't need a mother. Also, all of that was very weird. I thought that, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, the first half of the movie, some of the stuff I think could have been cut. Like, the the scene where Robin Williams goes to, I can't think of what that actress's name is. Christine Baranski. So the scene where Robin Williams goes to Christine Baranski's, who is uh, Val's biological mother, it's a very long scene of them, like, catching up and whatever. And I feel like maybe part of that was trying to explain how this family came to be. I'm still unsure. I don't know. It's just also, I guess I also had questions of, like, if you were Val and you grew up with Armand and Albert as your fathers, and, like, you know that you have a biological mother. Like, yes, okay, that's, that's how reproduction works. Yeah. But like you've never met this person. It's not like they've they haven't talked to each other in 20 years. Like the like Armand and and whatever that her I think her name was Catherine. Yeah. Yeah, they haven't spoken to each other. It's not like they're friends and you know she's just not a mother. So I don't know. I feel like Val would have more feelings about like meeting his biological mom. Then just like, yeah, like, let's totally have her pretend to be my mother. And also, I know that they're very entrenched in a tight knit community in South, South Beach, South Palm Beach, mm -hmm. whatever. South Beach, South Beach. They don't know one other woman, right? Like they don't like, you know what I mean? Like they because because yes, they they own this thriving drag club. But like we see because uh albert is running around doing shopping and stuff like there's other stuff happening in south beach so like if they're a part of the business community surely there are other businesses like they would have friends like i'm just really struggling to believe that they don't know any other women oh yeah 
I honestly, that just further underscores the fact that I think Val is just a fucking sociopath. Because he meets his mom for the first time ever. And is just so whatever. And he asks his dads to go out of their way to pretend to be straight, to appease two people they've never met. And I don't know. I just... I mean, I know that... Okay, I know they're supposed to be young. So I know that, like, neither... Like, he's 20 and she's 18. So, like, babies. And also the fact that her father's, like in the news adds a adds a layer of you know they they have to play their cards a very particular way but i feel like they try and use that as like the reason this is so important to get both of the family's blessings Mm -hmm. in the end like they could just elope so i don't know i just don't feel like the stakes make sense for for the action that unfolds that's very fair and (laughs) i didn't mention in the summary but for anyone who hasn't watched this and just wants to be spoiled on all the plot points part of the reason why they are going out of their way to put on this show for the senator is that the senator is also in hot water because he was a founding member of I think it's like the coalition for moral order or something like that and the other person his running mate the other person who was a huge part of this coalition was found dead of a heart attack in bed with a with an underage black sex worker and that was the big scandal which there's so many elements of this movie that I'm I'm gonna say ahead of time I like this movie I think it's freaking funny I love Nathan Lane I love Robin Williams but there are elements to it of just how overtly racist the senator is and everyone like in his posse i mean he's anti-semitic he's racist he's homophobic he's he's just all the horrible things he's basically like hey guys what do we know is a huge problem amongst the republican party and what if we just distill it all down into one person and no I'm not talking about oh god we could insert so many here let's say Abbott DeSantis Marjorie Taylor Greene I could go on but take those people but refine them like take like a Reagan like refinement to Ron DeSantis and that's Gene Hackman's character in this and it's so uncomfortable at so many points but that's that's another important plot point of why it's so important that he has no further scandal and of course his daughter wanting to marry the son of a drag club owner and his star performer would cause even more of an even more unrest among the party. Yeah. So it's it's weird because the stakes are higher 
for Barbara in a way. And Val is just still all too happy to be like, yeah, babe, I'll just force my dads to play straight. That way your dad is comfortable in his election cycle. And it all goes back to the, I hope this doesn't affect your vote, as if that motherfucker would be getting any votes in that house. Yeah. Through the whole dinner scene, that's all that Nathan Lane was doing was he was holding up a mirror to the senator for all of his prejudices and shitty opinions and was just reflecting them back at him in a really hyperbolic and ridiculous way. He loved it. He's like, you know what? You're right. I thought I was extreme, but we could go further and we should took it as a challenge well and i also i mean obviously that speaks to i mean obviously we talked about nathan lane's performance but i also it speaks speaks to albert's talent like yes he's a he's dramatic and yes yes. he's a diva but it's very clear during that scene that like he knows his shit he knows what he's doing like he is good at performing and this is you know the performance of a lifetime baby and God, was he, I mean, he was EGOT worthy through that whole thing. So Chelsea, if it's not jumping too far ahead, the most uh, contentious part of this episode, in my opinion, is, is this a rom-com? I am going to say very confidently, even before we go through our criteria, this is not a rom-com, Madison. I don't know. I was a little confused watching it because I kept waiting for there to be something that would have made me think, oh, okay, like, I now get it. Like, yes, there is, we've got two couplings. We've got Albert and Armand, and then we've got the kids. But the kids, the kids' love story, Val and Barbara, might be the impetus for the action, but it is not what is, like, their connection to each other is not what's driving the story. It is the Mm. fact that their connection to each other and like the life they want to start together is in direct opposition to the very disparate lives that their parents lead. And that is what is driving the story. That is the tension. It is not romantic tension. It is not. And, and even, okay. And then if we look at Armand and, Albert, okay, they're they're an established couple, but, you know, we did Sweet Home Alabama a little while ago. They're both married. It's that you can still have a rom-com, but they don't, they clearly, there's emotion happening. There's, there's, uh, you know, clearly they've been probably afraid of what would happen should, you know, one of them pass on or because they don't, they don't have the same rights as other, as other folks. It's not, that's also not what is driving this story. (laughs) And honestly, I don't really even think that they, that they date. Let's get into this because I have, I have some convoluted arguments. So let's, let's start out. We have the first criteria of do they date? And what that looks like is, are there clear moments of connection? between the pairing of our choice. 
And I'm going to kick Val and Barbara out of the conversation entirely, mostly because I hate Val. And Barbara is like if you made a townhouse cracker into a person, essentially. She's very flavorless, maybe a great vehicle for cheese, but uh, overall, you know, it's not something that you would eat on its own. So this leaves us with Armand and Albert. And I would say that there's, there are multiple moments of deepening connection between the two of them. That their relationship reaches new depths as Albert takes the lead in pointing out the deficiencies in the relationship. And Armand seeks to strengthen their bond after realizing what's at stake for him to lose. So I would argue that there are moments of sort of dating and the biggest moment obviously coming to the peak when he gives him the palimony papers. Because I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if gay marriage was going through school in terms of how old it is, it would be in the third grade right now. So picture a third grader. That's how long it's been legal to marry the person you love if you are of the same sex in the United States. But I would argue that with the palimony papers and with the various moments, even when Albert is not necessarily on screen, there are several moments with Armand where he's talking to Val and is essentially telling him, I love you, but I have to choose Albert because I cannot do this if it means losing him. So I would argue that due to that, it meets that criteria. All right. I, you've convinced me. Yes, I will. Fine. I will concede. They do date. I also want the listeners to know that there is one person in this world who can do a proper full-on eye roll, and it is Chelsea, and it is a marvelous thing to see, and it just occurred. (laughs) So then the second criteria, did I laugh? And I definitely laughed at this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not arguing. This is a comedy. Absolutely. We're arguing the romedy of it. <laughs> yeah, we're we're arguing the romance of bit of it. I this was not a question whether or not this was funny. So then the final does love conquer the plot? Meaning is love in the driver's seat? Is the love is the relationship that is being cultivated driving the plot? I know I sort of had this earlier. But I would argue that it is the family dynamics that are driving the plot forward. It is not the romance between uh, any couple in this movie. However. Oh, God. (laughs) I would once again argue that despite the plot being instigated by Val's request, what moves it forward is the fact that despite everything going on, Armand's relationship with Albert is what causes the 
full plot to move forward, like the request for them to play straight instigates it. And that is brought on by one of the uh, romantic, if you want to call it that, relationship. However, everything tr transpires because Armand realizes that it is Albert who he cannot lose through all of this because that's a relationship that has to endure more than anything. And on top of that, Albert then concedes and meets Armand at that midway, you know, halfway point and compromises. And that's why he comes out in drag as Mother Coleman because he understands that his relationship with Armand can only be strengthened by supporting their son, Val, in his ridiculous schemes. And so really it's the love of Albert and Armand that help everything unfold as it should and causes Val to be a little bit less of a sociopath and admit that they're his fathers. Or apparently father and mother. But I digress. So, love conquers this plot, Chelsea. I, I really, I, I just don't know that I agree with you. <laughs> I understand. I knew it was a long shot. I knew walking into this that it was going to be, it was going to be difficult. And do I believe everything that it came out of my mouth? Not at all, Chelsea. Not at all. But I had to make fight. So your position is that this is a rom-com. It does qualify. And I don't think it fits all, meets all the criteria. Yeah, so, it definitely doesn't meet the last criteria. Love is not in the driver's seat. No. So I don't, this is not a rom-com. Is it, is it at least like a rom-ish con? <laughs> <laughs> in the world of rom-communism, is this like almost a comrade? <laughs> oh, dear Lord. That was a Ted Lasso reference for anyone who wasn't aware. It's, go, yeah, if you... If you just just a brief, brief tangent, if you have not watched Ted Lasso because you, like I, were like, I don't care about sports at all. Why on earth would I watch this uh, sports uh, TV show? Um, it is the most wholesome and kind and wonderful TV show I have ever seen and yeah, watch it. I mean, look, I, I actually, I think I was like the last person that had not watched that show. I like genuinely believe that everyone listening to this has seen it. So, but just in case, I just needed it to be said because I was a, I was a damn fool and I could have been happier so much sooner <laughs> if I had just watched an episode. When Paul and I started watching it, because I started watching because everyone was talking about it and I didn't have Apple TV because what am I, a fucking oil baron no no one has apple tv money but paul had it and he was like yeah okay we'll watch this and every time that we would watch it we would go like oh this is the moment where shit hits the fan you know this is the moment where something bad happened and we would like take guesses of what a normal predictable television show would do to fuck up something to add drama and suspense or bring you down from that feel-good high and it never did that 
not a single time did Ted Lasso go, actually, the bad thing that you're thinking is going to happen, it happened. Not once. And we looked at each other and we were like, are we bad people? Are we bad people for assuming that all this horrible shit is about to happen? No. We're just conditioned. Well, no, no, no. But, like, you understand how plot works in a in a objective sense. But you also can are people that can observe patterns in a world. And this is just a show that happens to not fall into those traps. And it's so comfortable. I mean, like, I felt, I felt the similar way, like, you know, there's been a lot of good TV recently. Like, uh, Heartstopper, Our Flag Means Death the new A League of Their Own. These are all shows that at several different points, I kept waiting for them to do the thing that other shows would have done. And they just continued to not do those things. And I'm like, oh my God, wait, TV like this can exist? Mm -hmm. Because up until this point, there was no evidence of that. (laughs) Yeah, no. Well, and you're watching this and expecting... I don't know, like a drama, and it's not. But it's also not, I mean, it is a comedy. It's comedic. But it's also not, you know, slapstick funny. It is just so well done. And we may eventually do a spinoff series where we only talk about Ted Lasso. Because I could talk about it for hours. But I I don't know if the people want that at this at this juncture <laughs> so we'll we'll hold off you guys write in i'm also like without even having to look it up very confident that at least 10 different ted lasso podcasts exist oh i god i hope so that'll be you know what that's all i will listen to from now on i will listen to our podcast and i will listen to ted lasso coverage and that's it fuck the new york times daily you know fuck everything Only Ted Lasso content from here on out. Okay. Because this could not be a laughs episode or really any conversation with yours truly without me bringing up Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) And I can't confirm this. So honestly, it's driving me nuts. But in the final scene, as the credits are rolling, they're walking down the aisle. The maid of honor... It is absolutely Christine Sutherland, a.k.a. Joyce Summers, the Slayer's mother. It is her. I was like, oh, my God, it's Joyce. I looked. I looked on IMDb. I read the the credits. I went to her Wikipedia page. I Googled my question. Cannot find ev- a shred of evidence that that is her. But I'm like, it, it, if it's not her, it's her fucking doppelganger. It is like it it looks exactly like her. And this was 96 and Buffy started in 97. So like, oh, I trust you wholeheartedly. Do you ever wonder if maybe our real sponsor of this podcast is actually Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Our sponsor has nothing to do with Joss Whedon. I want to make that very clear uh, at the jump. But we are actually a podcast uh, sponsored by the idea of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Of constant reference and reverence to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Love me some Buffy. <laughs> I talk about it pretty much daily. It will come up. Oh, as it as it should. As it should. While I am disappointed that this isn't a rom-com, it's just ish. <laughs> I'm standing by the ish. 
It's okay. You know what? I thought I thought what I brought to the table was rom-com adjacent. Perhaps this is rom-com adjacent. So it can be it can be something can be a rom-com, something can be not a rom-com, and something can be rom-com adjacent. I love that. Uh so we know your first fix and possibly your only fix, but I did want to ask you do you have, I know that usually you have like an alternate description and is there anything that you just really wanted to point out in a description of this film that was otherwise left untended? Look, this isn't, I didn't prepare an alternate description because most of the time when I do that, I'm like very angry. (laughs) Case in point, You've got mail, never been kissed. And perhaps to a slightly lesser degree of anger, but certainly annoyance, Sweet Home Alabama. I was not mad about this movie. So I don't, I didn't prepare anything. However, I will say that Val is case in point, an example of an ungrateful child. Um, Oh, you can call him a little shit. That's okay. (laughs) Um, he's, he is the villain of this movie. I think we have established that. Um, and I feel like his apology should have been better. Um, because honestly, the, some of the scenes he had with Robin Williams broke my heart. Oh my God, I was yeah. like, I cannot believe he's do. Also, okay. Side note, the, the beginning of the movie where it's, if you, if you know what the movie's about, it's very clear that that's not what's happening, but it's like a pretend fake out that like Robin Williams is having an affair with this younger man, but then it's like surprise it's his son. Um, that was weird. Yeah. And I just could have done without it. Um, yeah. Or they could have made it a lot shorter because you immediately understand what's happening. Uh, Albert has already accused Armand of, cheating of thinking that he's cheating because he's chilling white wine you could have him send uh agador home and have him be like oh you look great and him be like you look great too and he goes really and then cut it off there but like the weird hair touch by the jacuzzi yeah that could that could be cut we'll leave that on the cutting room floor yeah i mean justice for armand and albert the true heroes with their just awful son who just uh, only cares i mean look he's 20 i'm not okay i don't want to make excuses for val he he should have just i just how did he end up that way how did he end up so selfish yeah it wasn't by albert i'll tell you that no it wasn't i also i really would have liked to see more moments of them acting as a family Mm -hmm. like even if you're gonna have Val wanting them to appear like a family that would make the senator or congressman, whatever he is, comfortable. I would have appreciated more interactions between the Armand, Albert, and Val. He's grown up with these two men. Like, they're his dads. I don't understand why that wasn't more prevalent. You have, obviously, you know, his scenes with Armand, which makes it clear But you have the whole montage of Albert going shopping in the morning before Val even wakes up. So, you know, first thing in the morning, he's going to the bakery and ordering a cake for delivery. 
And he's planning dinner for that evening to, you know, special for Val. So clearly he loves him very much, which to me would say that they're very close. And it doesn't make any sense at all why Val insists on treating Albert with such derision when clearly they're close. Their relationship doesn't translate well in the movie without any additional scenes putting the two of them together. So I want more of that. That's my fix. I don't have a lot of plot fixes. I think that Val is actually a really excellent villain. I hated him a lot. Kudos to Dan Futterman for playing a really insufferable character. So overall, Chelsea, are we are we ready to do our watchability score? Yeah. So in case anyone is just now tuning in, for anyone who doesn't know, the watchability score is based off of Zillow's walkability score, and it's on a scale of five, one to five. So first, you have Stranded in the Desert. Two, you have Backroads Barbecue. Three, you're at a strip mall in suburbia. Four, you're four blocks from a transit stop. And five, the best coffee in the entire city is right downstairs. So Chelsea, where do we land? I want to put this somewhere between strip mall and suburbia and four blocks to a transit stop because it's definitely not a four, but I feel like for the moments that it succeeded, the it should be closer to a four than a three. Yeah. But I don't think it quite gets it there because the pacing of the movie was a little weird. It's, this is a three and a half, I think, which would be like, I don't know. You're better at that. <laughs> So essentially, you're pretty close to a transit stop, but the bus is always late. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the driver's a real asshole and always reeks of cigarette smoke and it's just mean. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, you know what would fit the theme of this movie? You're four blocks from a transit stop, but the guy who drives your route insists on listening to conservative radio as he drives. Great. Perfect. Yeah, you're just in there listening to him just gobble up the absolute hot garbage spew that pours like molten sludge out of the mouth of Fox News talking heads like Tucker Carlson. I know. I know. It's gag-worthy. I think I felt my hair gray thinking about it. Dear God. Ugh. All right. What, what, what are your thoughts, Madison? I would agree. I would agree. Obviously, there were some very 1996 elements to this that gave me the ick, like the consistent use of the F-slur and the insanely overt, everything-phobic nature of the senator. And I understand that, uh, at least for the senators, it was more so almost like a dark comedic element of the movie, you know, showcasing like he's really a a caricature of himself is what Gene Hackman is playing. But in in our modern climate, it was very uncomfortable to watch because there are people genuinely saying shit like that, like right now. And they mean it so genuinely. I mean, honestly, though, it's it's almost scary because I, I, I think like, as you pointed out earlier, that if if uh, same sex marriage in America were a child, it would be a third grader. 
like how quickly we forget how how recent some of these uh, rights that you think of as being like integral to your humanity existing are. I mean, people talk about uh, civil rights in the country and like segregation, like desegregation only happened, did not happen that long ago. No. Like, you know what I mean? And then if you look at history as a whole, it's like the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people forget how recent these things are. And so it's like you look at this movie and it's like you can't even be like, this is 1996. Like, we're still having these conversations. Like, that's how how long it takes to change things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like this me- <laughs> and 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 seeing really obvious points of regression and having a character on screen who's meant to be playing a caricature of you know, this this concept, this type of person and then to, you know, scroll through any kind of news feed and see legitimately elected officials claiming that Jewish space lasers cause wildfires, it, it, it loses its humor really, really quickly. Uh, but I don't think that's the movie's fault. I think that's just a, a happenstance of an unfortunate progression of time since it came out well and and i will say like coming into this because very early on you're given a scene with uh armand and albert and then you know the the sun comes in and then you're given this scene with gene hackman and um you know barbara and them and i wasn't sure in that moment if this film was going to be more equal in its portrayal of two sides of this equation Mm -hmm. but i don't the film does not do that i mean like they the the barbara and her family like the senator like play a much smaller role Mm -hmm. this is which i think we we talked about you know this is very much about armand and albert more than anything else and so i do think that this film like for as awful as gene hackman's uh character is like it's very clear that you're not supposed to side with him like yeah you know what i mean like i don't i don't feel like this movie is trying to tread this line where they're like not trying to alienate a conservative audience um while also pleasing a progressive one i think that this film is very clear in where it stands on this set of issues so and i think that's really underscored in the final resolution of the movie you have gene hackman you know looking down his nose these people once he figures out you know once once the the jig is up and it's albert who figures out how to get him and his family out under cover by dressing them in drag. So you have the gay man, the drag queen, helping maintain the re- the reputation of this conservative senator by putting him in drag. And that's how he's able to get out of everything. So essentially you have what would be perceived as, you know, the the peak liberal in this movie actually helping save the conservative senator's bacon at the end of the day. 
and his reputation. And I just, I think that's great. Um, also, Gene Hackman okay, looks okay in drag, but not nearly as good as Patrick Swayze and Wesley Snipes. <laughs> There's some good-looking drag queens. And for anyone who does not know what I'm talking about, there's a movie called Tu Wong Fu that features Wesley Snipes. Thanks. Wait, no, no. It, no, it's got a longer title. It does have a longer title. Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmore, isn't that? Yes. Or something like that. Yes. It's a much longer title. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but... It is, <laughs> it is truly great, and Wesley Snipes has some stalks, man. Like, that guy likes for days so envious no no shame on gene hackman's drag appearance in this movie but well i think the important thing to take away from uh this conversation since we did bring up politics um is that if you want things to change you got to make your voice heard okay and obviously you should do that uh in the real world but in the world of entertainment, you can do that as well. Every Thursday or Friday, because sometimes I don't have my act together, we have a poll. We have a poll, people, and you should vote in it. They are very serious questions. These are on the cutting edge of entertainment and, and everything that is important in the media we consume. Who wore white feathers better? Was it Josie Grossi? Or was it a deranged chicken? And let me tell you, it was a deranged chicken. You made your voices heard, okay? And Chelsea, if that's not democracy, god damn it, I don't know what is. So yeah, vote vote in our poll. Yes. And and Chelsea, uh, where can they find our poll? They can find our poll on Instagram at Love at First Screening. But if Instagram is not your thing, you can also follow us on Twitter at TheLaughsPod. That's T-H-E-L-A-F-S-P-O-D. And if you would like to tell us your thoughts and feelings about the movies that we discuss, if you would like to suggest your favorite rom-com for us to possibly ruin, that is the fine print here, is that you have to be okay with me hating it. Me too. Uh, and possibly Madison hating it. But maybe we'd like it. We could. Uh, you can you can request that we, we do that or, or say hi to us by sending us an email to loveitforscreening at gmail.com. We are here or anywhere you get your podcasts every Wednesday talking about rom-coms that you love, that you love to hate, and everything in between. It's true. We are actually always here. We just stay constantly on the mic. I haven't peed in the last 18 hours. They will not let me go. It's terrifying. And I know that it's even worse for Chelsea because the box that they put her in isn't as nice as mine. <laughs> it was the it was the unfortunate result of her name being billed first on the logo. <laughs> so <laughs> But yeah, definitely find us online. Don't find us in real life. <laughs> so Chelsea, do you think that we should let them in on the secret of what we are covering next time around? Well, Madison, if we don't, I don't know how they can choose whether to watch it or ignore, ignore watching it. 
That's an excellent point. I honestly was just hoping to use this as a way to weed out some of our psychic viewers and have them be like, ha, I know what you're doing. And it'll be like, ha, tell me my future. But clearly that's not going to be an option. So, fine. Next time around, we are watching Failure to Launch featuring my aunt's favorite, Matthew McConaughey. In his rom-com era. God, what an era it was. And I don't think she'll mind when I say that every time you say Matthew McConaughey around her, she goes, God, I could just lick the screen. I think she'd be fine with that being on the internet forever. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) That was impeccable. And I will say that the first season of True Detective is actually one of the best seasons of television ever created. So I think that our listeners will be in for a real treat to see Mr. McConaughey in his rom-com era and not playing the bongos naked on his back deck, which he was once charged with uh, public indecency for. What? Oh, yeah. No, apparently he plays bongos. And I remember there was a news story where his neighbors called the cops on him because he was just... In his birthday suit, playing the bongos. Well, I'm looking forward to story hour next time. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to his eventual run for governor. Not really. That was a joke. I think he would have to run in Texas, and we all know which Texan has my heart for governor. So Chelsea, is there anything else that we've left out that we've forgotten? Oh, I think we need to um, bring up just one last sponsor. And that sponsor is the cold, cold glass of water that I've been drinking throughout this podcast. It is the most refreshing thing I have had all day because I was a little bit better about drinking water today, but yesterday... My beverage intake consisted of a ginger ale, a Coca-Cola, an iced coffee, and a Dos Equis beer, and one glass of water. Hydrate. (laughs) Good lord. I'll say, you know, my my sister and I always say, hydrate or dihydrate. I was really riding the rails yesterday. So this podcast today is brought to you by... A cold, amazing glass of water. Because all you listeners need to drink one. And on that note, (laughs) I think it is time to bid you all farewell. Until next time. Hey, listeners. Just wanted to talk to you about some exciting content that we have coming up. Our season one is winding to a close, at least for us recording these. And (laughs) we are thinking about taking some time off in January, but we don't want to leave you without laughs. Get it? Love it for screening laughs. It would be like denying a plant sunshine, Chelsea. Cruel and unusual. Exactly. So we do have a couple of bonus content episodes that'll be coming at you in January before we are back with you starting February 1st. It's the first Wednesday in February with season two. But 
this is where we need your help. One of our bonus episodes will be like a retrospective. We're going to look back on the films that we watched in season one. We're going to do some fun stuff. We're going to talk about the couples. We're going to talk about our discussions, the fun jokes that we've had and made along the way. Madison might share our villain origin stories, how this podcast came to be. I'm going to embellish it horribly. It's going to be a fun episode. And this is where you all come in. We would love to hear from you. So you can write in, send us an email to loveitforscreening at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram at loveitforscreening. You can also go down to the bottom of any of the episodes. The last link is anchor.fm slash screening slash message where your voice can literally be heard. You can record us a voice memo and we can include it in the podcast if that's something you're interested in. And what are we looking for, Madison? Gosh, we are looking for any fixes that they would like to propose. They can tell us how we got something wrong. More importantly, they can tell us how we've done everything right as we are perfect human beings. They can propose pretty much anything as long as they don't propose to us. <laughs> I'm a commitment phobe, Chelsea. If I'm ever going to have a proposal, I'm going to be the one proposing. And, you know, for me personally, if you have any conspiracy theories about romantic comedies in general, that'll really fuel the energy that I've been going for (laughs) this whole season. I'm trying to convince people that these movies are not the feel-good films we think they are. I think there's something more sinister happening. You can help me in this noble cause by writing in, sending us a voice message. But seriously, we'd really like to hear from you. So if you're interested in contributing to that bonus episode that will premiere sometime in January when we take a little bit of time off before season two, please send us an email, a DM, or the voice message by Sunday, December 18th. And if you are sending us a message, a written, please let us know if you would like any of your identifying information included, whether that is a first name, full name, social security number, your bank routing and account number, Uh, We can air any of that or air none of it if you would rather. And if you are leaving a voice message, uh, please know that that gives us license to play it on the air and remix it so it sounds like a cool hit pop song. Which we totally have the skills to do. I'm a mix and master. That's not true. I had to Google the other day. How to match volumes in tracks. I was just impressed I knew how to Google. It's honestly a skill that's in short supply these days. I've been trying to teach my grandmother how to copy and paste for years. But in all, please keep in mind that your deadline is December 18th. We really would love to hear from you. Uh, Love to hear what you can contribute. So if you would like, please do. 